All right, First Samuel 2 here. We'll read the whole chapter. In this. Um, yeah, it's, this is the Old Testament for you, okay? God's going to get pretty mad here at Eli and his sons, and we'll see why. But we'll read again where we picked off last week, which was Hannah's prayer. And then we'll read the whole chapter. So then Hannah prayed and said, My heart rejoices in the Lord, and the Lord my horn is lifted high. My mouth boasts over my enemies, for I delight in your deliverance. There is no one holy like the Lord. There is no one beside you. There is no rock like our God. Do not keep talking so proudly, but let your mouth speak such arrogance. For the Lord is a God who knows, and by him deeds are weighed. The bows of the warriors are broken, but those who stumbled are armed with strength. Those who are full hire themselves out for food, but those who are hungry are hungry no more. She who was barren has borne seven children, but she who has had many sons pines away. The Lord brings death and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and raises up. The Lord sends poverty and wealth. He humbles and he exalts. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. He sets them with princes and has them inherit a throne of honor. For the foundations of the earth are the Lord's. On them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful servants but the wicked will be silenced in the place of darkness. It is not by strength that one prevails. Those who oppose the Lord will be broken. The Most High will thunder from heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Then Elkanah went home to Ramah, but the boy ministered before the Lord under Eli the priest. Eli's sons were scoundrels. They had no regard for the Lord. Now it was the practice of the pre, it was practice of the priest that whenever anyone, any of the people offered a sacrifice, the priest's servant would come with a three-pronged fork in his hand while the meat was being boiled, and would plunge the fork into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. Whatever the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is how they treated all the Israelites who came to Shiloh. But even before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the person who was sacrificing, Give the priest some meat to roast. He won't accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. The person said to him, Let the fat be burned first, and then take whatever you want. The servant would answer, No, hand it over now. If you don't, I'll take it by force. This sin of the young men was very great in the Lord's sight, for they were treating the Lord's offering with contempt. But Samuel was ministering before the Lord. A boy wearing a linen ephod, each year, his, each year his mother made him a little robe and took it to him when she went up with her husband to offer the annual sacrifice. Eli would bless Elkanah and his, Eli would, would bless Elkanah and his wife, saying, May the Lord give you children by this woman to take the place of the one she prayed for and gave to the Lord. Then they would go home. And the Lord was gracious to Hannah. She gave birth to three sons and two daughters. Meanwhile, the boy Samuel grew up in the presence of the Lord. Now Eli, who was very old, heard about everything his sons were doing to all Israelites and how they slept with the women who served at the entrance to the tent of meeting. So he said to them, Why do you do such things? I hear from all the people about these wicked deeds of yours. No, my sons, the report I hear spreading among the Lord's people is not good. If one person sins against another, God may mediate for the offender. But if anyone sins against the Lord, who will intercede for them? His sons, however, did not listen to their father's rebuke, for it was the Lord's will to put them to death. And the boy Samuel continued to grow in stature and in favor with the Lord and with people. 
Now a man of God came to Eli and said to him, This is what the Lord says. Did I not clearly reveal myself to your ancestors' family when they were in Egypt under Pharaoh? I chose your ancestor out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, and to wear an ephod in my presence. I also gave your ancestors' family all the food offerings presented by the Israelites. Why do you scorn my sacrifice and offering that I prescribed for my dwelling? Why do you honor your sons more than me by fattening yourselves on the choice parts of every offering made by my people Israel? Therefore, the Lord, the God of Israel, declares, I promised the members of your family would minister before me forever. But now, the Lord declares, far be it from me. Those who honor me, I will honor. But those who despise me will be disdained. The time is coming when I'll cut short your strength and the strength of your priestly house, so that no one in it will reach old age. And you will see distress in my dwelling. Although good will be done to Israel, no one in your family will ever reach old age. Every one of you that I do not cut off from serving at my altar, I will spare only to destroy your sight and sap your strength, and all your descendants will die in the prime of life. And what, happened, and what happens to your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, will be assigned to you. They will both die on the same day. I'll raise up for myself a faithful priest, who will do according to what is in my heart and mind. I will firmly establish his priestly house, and he will minister before my anointed one always. Then everyone left in your family line will come and bow down before him for a piece of silver and a loaf of bread and plead, appoint me to some priestly office so I can have food to eat. Yowzers. Sobering, sobering chapter, right? Uh, good lessons for us out of the Old Testament, though, amen? Let's have a prayer and then we'll, uh, we'll, uh, we'll dig into this and find some positives as well. Uh, Father, we, uh, you know, we do thank you. We thank you for, obviously, the, the incredible good news uh, that your word contains. Uh, God, but we also thank you for the challenging words your, your, your word contains. God, we know we, we need both, Father. We pray, God, that today uh, that you sober us before you, God. Help us to, to learn from the failures of those who have come before us, God, and to honor you as you should be honored, God. Help us to understand the, 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 the hope that you put before us of, of blessings, but also of curses. And help us to take seriously the warnings that your word commands us to, to understand. Be with us today, God. Open up the eyes of our hearts, God. Help us to see ourselves, God. Help us to see our families with the clarity that only you give, God. Help us to be a people that, that truly have ears to hear, God. Grant us repentance, Father, in whatever way we need it. We ask you to pour out much grace and mercy on us all. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Look, it is scary. And if you read even in like, you know, literal, more literal translation, it's pretty strong, even the rebuke that comes Eli's way, you know, at the end of that, that chapter, you know, where he says, I'll cut off your strength. It's literally, I'll cut off your arms. I'm going to break off your arms, right? God is, God is serious, right? Uh, and it's a, uh, you know, it's like even we talked about last week, you know, First and Second Samuel is phenomenal, uh, has phenomenal literary structure even in it, right? If you look at, you know, here in, in, in chapter 2, right, this is called a, a chiastic structure. And you see the entire chapter uh, is purposely arranged to help us to understand the main point, right? The chapter begins and it ends with this, in the same way, right? With an oracle, 
that, that has and contains at the end of that oracle, Revelation, you know, whether it's a prayer from Hannah uh, or the un unnamed man of God that comes at the end to Eli, uh, both come, right, with a message about God uh, and end with a reference to the Lord's anointed, right? Samuel, throughout uh, the, the, the structure of the chapter, is repeatedly contrasted and paired right alongside Eli's sons, all right? And that's purposeful. All right? And then right in the middle, you have Eli blessing Samuel's parents, all right? which in some senses is, you know, or in every sense, not some sense, right, is incredibly purposeful. Because the purpose of this entire chapter is, in a, is to put these two families right before our eyes. All right? And to put at the center of the chapter uh, a, a blessing from the mouth of Eli, whose family is going to be cursed. As he's blessing Samuel's family, who obviously is going to be very blessed, right, is incredibly ironic, right? Uh, and, and so this structure does drive home this point, which is the overarching point uh, of this entire chapter, right? Is, is will we be cursed or will we be blessed? Will we follow Samuel's family and find a life that is blessed by God? Or will we follow in the footpaths of Eli and his family and be cursed, the outcomes in our lives are very, very different. They're radically opposed to one another. And one of the beautiful things about the Old Testament narratives is, uh, the, in some sense, the gloves are off. And they're portrayed very clearly. Right? That God means business. Right? This is one of those chapters that's, that's, you know, again, it can be hard to, to stomach. And we can want to, um, you know, try to domesticate God. But that's not, that's not the God we serve. That's not the God of Hannah. You know, you think about even her prayer, you know, verse 2, there is no one holy like the Lord. There's no one, right? There's no one beside you, no rock, right? Those who are proud, those who are arrogant, you know what? God knows your deeds. And he's going to deal with them. Right? And Eli and his sons are examples of that. And as 1 Corinthians 10 tells us, the Old Testament is chock full of these types of examples to help us, to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. All right? And so it is a sobering warning, uh, but we'll look at those two concepts, cursed or blessed, uh, and thankfully then we'll close out the end a little bit with, with how. Okay, how do we make sure we stay on the blessed end of the spectrum? Amen? Awesome. Not coughing yet. All right. So let's look at these. You know, first, let's, let's start with the positive. We go positive, negative, positive, okay? Samuel's obviously tremendously positive. We see that, right, even from verse 11. All right, Elkanah went home to Ramah. The boy ministered before the Lord under the priest Eli. You know, that's kind of funny. That's funny wording now. Samuel ministered before the Lord under the priest Eli. Right there, you can already pick up. There's some hints of something's off here, though. Right? He didn't minister before the Lord alongside Eli. They weren't partners necessarily. Right? It's showing us that Samuel is, is God-oriented. Every, every one of the numerous verses here about Samuel and his, and his serving at the temple or to the Lord, it is always God-centered. That's where his focus is, right? uh, which, is which is important to note because his environment is anything but God-centric. Literally the opposite. Right? Eli, his sons, there's nothing good happening around him, but two times, right? Verse, verse 11, 
And then again in verse 18 and 19, we get this repeated phrase, Samuel ministering before the Lord. Samuel serving before God. He is God-centered. He is God-focused. He's not serving himself in stark contrast to, to Phineas and Hophni. He is serving God, not people. Though he's there under Eli's tutelage in a sense, but he's not following the path of Eli. And then the next chapter, he's going to be the one that delivers kind of the final blow uh, from God to, to Eli, right? Uh, you know, and even how it's phrased there in verse 18, you know, Samuel was ministering before the Lord, right? The way it's phrased in the Hebrew is trying to help us see this is habitual pattern of his life. Samuel is constantly ministering before the Lord. He is consistently living this way. It's not he's having a good month or he's having a good year. There's a longevity about what he's doing and how he's living that is God-centered and God-oriented. Right? Serving God, even, even as a young man. Right? You know, we're, we're given the details well and... Uh, you know, there's many, there's many, uh, I didn't put it in there, but there's many pictures that depict uh, his mom, Hannah, coming to the temple uh, and giving him every year a new robe, right? But that's significant, right? It's significant for a couple reasons. One is the Old Testament Levitical code uh, only allows a Levitical priest to wear that, right? Uh, and, and what's kind of interesting is that uh, Eli, the high priest, is not making sure Samuel is wearing the, the priestly garment his mom is right so so hannah again is portrayed as one who is more spiritually in tune and aligned with god than eli right and it does it's a great emphasis for the importance uh in the in the level of influence a godly mother can have on her offspring right because she sees you know she's in some sense and the narrative is trying to help us to see even just her yearly contact Right, is anchoring and established Samuel in, in the faith more so than Eli. Right? And if you, you know, as we go through 1 Samuel, you'll see that, that Samuel's garments is a major theme. Right? It's often emphasized in, in a lot of the critical narratives. Uh, you know, obviously, this being one here, uh, one of the other scarier passages in, in 1 Samuel is 1 Samuel 15, when Saul, King Saul, is rejected as king. And when he's rejected at the end of the rebuke, what does he do? He tears Samuel's robe, right? And there's this idea, man, there's this, uh, Saul isn't like mad at Samuel's robe, but there is this, this, this element of Samuel where he is serving God. And so then he, in some sense, the, the robe becomes this outward picture of who he is, right? Unlike Saul and unlike Eli, where there's a disconnect. They're supposed to be serving God, but they're not really serving God. Right? But, but Samuel's robe becomes this, this, uh, this theme that helps us understand that, man, this, this, he, he's the real deal. What he is on the inside is also displayed on the outside. Right? There's no discontinuity between his life. Right? And you think about, again, even this idea. You know, Michelle was talking about this today. I mean, imagine that scene. Hannah had, had, had longed for a kid, like we talked about. She had been barren. God had closed her womb. She, she'd finally reached a point where she let go. All right? God, it's not what I want, but you know what? Uh, I'm going to be happy either way. And if you do give me a kid, I'm not even going to keep the kid because that's how surrendered I am. All right? And God gives her a kid. But imagine that. Imagine that conversation with Samuel. Why do I got to go live with this buffoon? You know what I mean? 
I mean, Samuel seems like he's a pretty switched on kid, right? You know, especially by the next chapter. That'll become very apparent. But imagine that conversation with mom and dad. Right? Especially as they start having more kids. And yet Samuel is, no, no, you're staying there. But explaining to him, here's why. All right? Because, man, we made a vow to God and we gave God our word and we're going to hold to that. All right? Imagine the imprint that would have on the kid. Again, not negatively as we would probably in our over-psycho-analytic minds would have thought. Right? But it seems to actually have really anchored him and ground him in God. That his life was dedicated to God. That his family as a whole, sacrifice. They follow God, even if it brings great pain and anguish on them. You know what? Because God is first. That seems to be hammered into his life, right? Showing that, that God ultimately is, is, is the most important one in their life. The text continues to emphasize this throughout the, the, throughout the chapter, right? Verse 21 and again in verse 26. You know, Samuel in harmony with God. Right? Verse 21 there echoes the words of Moses. Right? Samuel had that kind of relationship with God right? that, that, that Moses previously had, had, had known. Right? 2.26 is echoed heavily in the New Testament of Jesus. Right? Luke's Gospel says the same thing, right? That, that essentially the same thing as, as verse 26 uh, about Jesus, that he continued to grow in stature and favor with the Lord and with the people. Right? Of course, God blesses Hannah and Elkanah and their family for their sacrifice and putting God first. And she has many more children, right? more, more sons, and then daughters on top of that as well, right? Which, again, is a reminder to us, like we talked about last week, of the paradoxical uh, pattern of the gospel, right? We gain life by losing life, right? We, we find fulfillment by choosing to not find fulfillment in the things of the world, right? But, it, but instead to God, you know? But even at, at the end of Luke's gospel, right? Uh, at the story there in, in chapter 18 of uh, the rich young ruler when he comes to Jesus, right? And you know, Jesus susses the guy out uh, that he is greedy and he loves money. Uh, and so Jesus challenges him, hey, sell it all, give it all away. The guy won't do it, right? Peter turns and he's like, man, stink. This guy was a pretty switched on guy except for the whole money thing. And he says, man, this is really challenging Jesus. All right? Jesus says, look, yeah, with, with man it's impossible, but with God it is possible. Which is a good message, right? Even those who, who seem to be the most stubborn and stuck can, in fact, change with God. Right? But Peter freaks out a little bit there. And at the end of Luke 18, you know, verse 28 to 30, Peter says to Jesus, We have left all we've had to follow you. Verse 29, Truly I tell you, Jesus said to them, No one who has left home or wife or brothers or sisters or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this age and the age to come eternal life. It's a reminder, again, we have this paradoxical pattern, right? Hannah, Hannah buys into that gospel pattern having only a shadow of the gospel. We have the reality of the gospel. How freely do we buy into that pattern of losing life, sacrificing self, you know, for the good of God and for his kingdom, right? Peter buys into that, and what, what does he find? Is Jesus says, look, you, Peter, you're going to end up better off. Yes, you, you, you've, you've given up much, but you know what? You're gonna we're going to receive back 100 times. Right? And we see this in Hannah's life. She gives up that one son, and man, God blesses her. Right? Again, it's not a health, wealth, prosperity thing, right? but it is this paradoxical pattern. Look, when we put God first, God blesses your life. And we see this in Samuel, and we see this in his family. Right? But again, even with every positive step here of this blessed family, there's always this lingering comparison that's occurring. Right? And, and as Samuel is growing 
uh, and being commended by God and the people, Eli's household is being, being more and more condemned. All right? You know, and secondly here, you know, again, a little bit more sobering, let's take a look at Eli's sons, and then we'll take a look at Eli himself, right, at this, at this scary scene. Starts there, verse 12. If that's not a, an ominous start, I don't know what else is, right? Eli's sons were scoundrels. That's a great word. It's a word we probably don't use enough, right? <laughs> scoundrels, right? Uh, it, 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 unfortunately, the Hebrew is even better, and the NIV doesn't adopt it. Uh, but Eli's sons were sons of Belial. That's a little bit more stinging. Eli's sons are sons of Belial. Right? Now, it's even more a little bit stinging, because if you remember back in chapter 1, when Hannah is at the temple praying, and, and Eli says to her, woman, man, stop getting drunk in the temple, right? which is kind of a bad assumption. He assumes she's drunk, not that she's praying, even though she's in the temple. That kind of tells you how bad things have become, right? You know, but what does she respond to him? She says, I'm not a wicked woman. I'm not a daughter of Belial. He thinks she is. But he doesn't realize his own sons are. Again, a damning perception here of Eli. And the scary reality of how blind we can become to reality. Right? Eli's sons were scoundrels. Right? It says they had no regard for the Lord. Right? Intellectually, they knew God, but they didn't really know God. Intellectually, they knew there was a God. I mean, they were functioning there at priests. How in the world would they not know there's a God? But they didn't really believe in God. Right? It's the same as what we looked at in Romans 1, verse 21, right? where Paul says, although they knew, they knew God, they didn't glorify him as God or give thanks to him. And then so on becomes the downward progression of Romans 1, 2, and 3, right? You know, but it starts with that. They knew God, but they didn't glorify him as God. All right, so here's a guy, here are guys who are in the temple day after day. Here are people who are regularly going to church. And they intellectually know God, but they're not actually glorifying God. They're not actually living their lives as if there is a God. All right? We've got we we to realize that's a scary thing, right? And then it gets into their practices, and here's an old painting of their practices. Basically, whatever pot they were putting meat in, these guys would come over the shoulder of the worshiper and plunge the fork in. Right? Big fork. And whatever came up, that was what they were taking, right? This is the origin of potluck. I don't know. I don't know if that's true. I spent way too much time this week trying to find the origin of potluck. When, I think this is it, right? You know? And I think in some sense they were justifying it because, well, you know, it's kind of like it's luck. Whatever goes in, well, that must be what God wants me to have. Well, no. It's not how God wanted you to do it, right? You can read about it in Deuteronomy 18, uh, verse 3. There's specific parts of the sacrifice that are for the priests. But these guys don't care about God's word. They care about their desires, what they want, Right? Uh, in their random, you know, I don't know, perhaps weak way of attempting to absolve themselves of responsibility of their perverse potluck, right? They also do it with the fat being burned, right? The fat was meant to be burned as an offering to the Lord. That, that part was for God. Uh, they would come and literally, it says, if the person wouldn't hand it over, they would take it by force. The priest wants raw meat. Don't, don't give me any of this, even some of this boiled stuff. If it was being boiled, they're going to sneak in there and grab it as quick as they can, right? But they, again, it's, it, it's showing this scary part of it's all about them, right? It's all about them, right? 
verse 17, the sin of the young men was very great in the Lord's sight, for they were treating the Lord's offering with contempt. They had no respect for God and for his offerings because they had too much respect for themselves. Their problem was not low self-esteem. Their problem is high self-esteem. self-esteem. And that's what causes them to disrespect God's offerings and God's people, right? You can see there in the chapter of just how bad it becomes, you know. Even there in, um, you know, in verse 15, right? In, in 16, you see verse 16 specifically, right? The, the people saying to them, let the fat be burned. The worshipers knew... Here's the way it's supposed to go. God gets his portion, then you get yours, and then I get, I get mine. Right? They understood that pattern. Right? And they're trying to, to reason with the priests. Completely inverted. Right? And you think, man, surely it doesn't get any worse. Well, it does. Right? Verse 22 says, Now Eli, who was very old, heard about everything his sons were doing uh, to, to all Israel and seeing how they slept with the women who served at the entrance of the tent of meeting. So they're not only, you know, blaspheming the sacrifices and making a, a time that is meant to be about the, the, the people connecting to God. They made that all about themselves. But then they're sleeping with the women, you know, serving there at the tent of meeting. All right? And that's a very interesting thing, you know, because if you look, at, if you look historically at the Canaanite religions, right? and even as we go through 1 Samuel, you, you, you know, you get hints of this. You know, but, but much of the Canaanite religions were centered around sex, right? Asterisk poles, right? Those who are of age can figure out those types of things, right? What they, what they represent, you know? Um, and, you know? And so it was very common in the Canaanite religions to, to go into a temple and, you know, sleep with a temple prostitute, right? And so what they're doing is not purely the sin of immorality, though it is the sin of immorality, but they're also becoming like the world. They're taking on the, the patterns of the ways of the world and bringing that into God's temple. Right? Where, where God's temple, God's people, God's priests were meant to be a light to the nations and change the nations. But instead, their people had actually become like the nations. Right? So that's the severity of what they're doing. Again, it's not immorality is bad, yes, for sure. And there's lots of Old Testament passages that'll make that abundantly clear as well, right? But it's also this adapting into the ways of the world and bringing those things in, right? Rather than honoring God as, as they should, right? For sure, passages like Ephesians 5, verse 3, but among you there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity of greed because these are improper for God's holy people. For sure that has, a, you know, has application here. But it's even more so the fact that they had conformed to the ways of the, of the world. But you look at the, the summary of these guys, and again, it's, it's me first mentality. It's them before God. It's them before others. It's self-centeredness. You know, to an extreme. You know, we got to understand, man, that God sees that. Right? What is Hannah's prayer? Right? Is, is God knows. God knows. You know, what is the pattern of our lives like? Is it more like Eli's sons, or is it more like Samuel? Serving self or serving the Lord. That's what this chapter is trying to hammer into us. Right? And also, under this idea of curse, is not just Eli's sons, but, but Eli himself. And for those of us that, that are in here and are fathers, I'm not sure 
it gets a lot scarier than this. Some people think, man, Eli, he was a righteous guy, kind of like Lot, and had issues. Maybe. Maybe a common comparison. All right? But, but Eli, as a father, is a scary, scary case study. All right? We don't have heaps of time to dig through it, but man, there's a lot, there's a lot of principles that, that really are worth taking note of. You know, one is, is Eli, in terms of parenting and correction, it's too little, too late. Too little, too late. Chapter 2, verse 22 says, you know, basically, Eli has heard so much. But it literally says that Eli, at that point, is an old man. And this is the first time he's coming and saying something to his kids. I mean, his, 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 his sons are old enough to be active in terms of relationships. So they're at least past teenage age. And only then is he getting engaged and trying to say something to them. And even then, it only seems like he's saying something to them because the people are complaining so much. Again, it's not intrinsically motivated out of himself. It's more like, come on, man, you're making me look bad, which they were. Right? But his, his approach, and you read even the words he has to say to them, and, you know, the NIV's use of rebuke is wrong. And we'll took, look at a couple other translations of that. He, Eli does not rebuke them. Right? I mean, to say of all those things we just looked on the previous slide, that, hey, what you guys are doing is not good, that really doesn't quite cover it, man. You know what I mean? That doesn't, that doesn't, your words are not matching with, with the behavior, right? You know, but it's too little too late, right? Secondly, we see about Eli is it's all talk, no action. So he does start to talk to them, right? Verse 25 uh, sons did not listen to their father's rebuke, as the NIV says, NET, ESV, lots of other translations say, Eli's sons would not listen to their father. It wasn't a rebuke, just his words. They didn't listen to him. All right? they, didn't li- they didn't listen to him. And probably why they didn't listen to him is because he was, in some sense, uh, very much involved in what they were doing. All right? the, the whole story, the whole narrative, and we'll unpack this you know, as we get more into like chapter 4, but it'll play on the idea that Eli is fat. He's heavy, right? And the reason he's heavy is because of the sacrifices. Now, it was specifically his son's doing it, but very much probably under his guidance, right? And so, so parents, fathers specifically, that's kind of a helpful warning, right? You try to pull your kids up on something that you do, guess what? They're not going to listen to you because you can say whatever you want to say till you're blue in the face, but they're going to look at your actions, and they're going to see that, hey, what you're saying and, you're, and, and what you're doing, well, you're, you're, you're condemning me on something that you yourself are doing, so I'm going to do exactly what you do with your own words, and that's disregard them. All right? Hopefully you followed that. All right? Get it. It's a scary thing. He's, he's a lot of talk. You know, and even chapter 3, you don't have to turn there, verse 13, when Samuel gets a word directly from God and goes to tell Eli what God had to say, God says to Eli, for I told him that I would judge his family forever because of the sin he knew about. His sons blaspheming God, and he failed to restrain them. That Eli had other options to his sons that weren't listening, but he wouldn't do it. You can read in Deuteronomy what those options were. They're not really pleasant options. And they did involve the legal system in Israel as a nation organized under God. And it was capital punishment for his son like. Again, it's strong. Again, maybe we're soft 
in God's right. All right? We look at that and think, man, that's really harsh. Well, maybe God knows something we don't know. Maybe God looks at it from a bigger picture and a better vantage point and has a heck of a lot more knowledge than we do, right? But Eli, at the end of the day, the principle was he had a lot of talk, but he didn't actually act on it. So his sons don't listen, right? We read on, and, and, and you know, Eli renounces his own responsibility of the situation. All right? Again, you've got to remember, we talked about this last week, with Old Testament narratives, you're going to get things portrayed with no commentary. This is one of those scenarios, right? You read what Eli says there in verses 22 uh, down to verse 25. Some of that sounds good, right? I mean, you know, it talks about, hey, if you, if you sin against another person, you know, perhaps the, the judge can intercede for you between that, in that dispute with another person. But if you sin against God, then, well, there's no one to intercede with you. That sounds theologically accurate. But when you take Eli's speech to his sons about the problem, and then you look at what God has to say to Eli about what the problem is, both here in chapter 2 and then also coming up in chapter 3, they don't line up. Because Eli, by saying, look, you know, you're sinning against God, so there's no one who can intercede on your behalf. He is absolving himself of responsibility. And his parents, I've heard parents say this. It's my kid's decision. And they say that trying to absolve themselves of responsibility based on the direction their kids are going. That does not line up with this story. Eli's sons, for sure, God is going to hold them accountable. But God's also coming after Eli for his his accomplice role in this situation. And Eli can try to shug the responsibility off all he wants. And he can push it back on God and push it back on the individual choices. But God sees it from a different perspective. And God is serious about Eli's failure as a father to restrain his children. And again, for the dads, man, we've got got to be sobered by that reality. Right? Eli can renounce his responsibilities all he wants. But man, God's got a lot more to say to him. You know, fourthly, against Eli, what we see here, you know, when God comes to him and talks to him there in verse 27... Uh, through the man of God, he says, did I, did I not clearly, verse 27, did I not clearly reveal myself to your, to your ancestors' family when they were in Egypt under Pharaoh? I chose your ancestor out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, and to wear nephod in my presence. I also gave your ancestors' family all the, all the food offerings presented by the Israelites. And so you think about this first thing that God is, is saying to him, and this is a common pattern in the Old Testament. All right? I mean, Eli is living generations and generations and generations and generations and probably generations and generations after the exodus he's a long way removed but but in god's mind that should still govern how eli acts and how he lives and how he raises his kids he says to him right you should look back here's here's what god did with your ancestors all right you should look back on the exodus and you should look on the privileged position that your family as priests have been given. Right? That knowledge of that should change how you're living. Right? And God's point is essentially what I've put there. Right? God has shown his family grace. And that grace should have an effect on how Eli lives. Right? Again, this is a huge pattern in the Old Testament. Right? You can look at, uh, on your own time, Deuteronomy 6. You know, verse 20 to 21. And it says... And this is Moses preaching to the, to the generation after 
those who experience the exodus. And he says, in the future, so say it even further down the road, when the next generation asks you, what is the meaning of these stipulations, decrees, and laws the Lord our God has commanded you? Tell him, we were slaves of Pharaoh in Egypt, but the Lord brought us out under a mighty hand. Look at what Moses is doing there. These are people who, they were never actually physically in Pharaoh. They say, look, this is the paradigm through which you need to see your life. Because God is the God of what? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's the God of all generations simultaneously because he is a God that exists outside of time. He looks and he sees the beginning and the end as if they are one. And he looks at the spans of generations and he expects us to connect the dots. And he expects us with the next generation to help them connect the dots. Because the reality is, for those of you who have kids, and myself included, right, my kids are not going to have the same upbringing that I had. Praise God. But the great danger in that is they become entitled brats, for lack of a better description. All right? Scoundrels. Hopefully not. God, please. No. You know? But, but the, the, the remedy for that is what he says there in Deuteronomy 6. Is make sure they understand the pattern of our life. We were slaves and God rescued us. God has shown us grace because we were, we were slaves. We were going nowhere good and death was at our door. But God rescued us. And so they're meant to always see life, though they're generations and generations and generations removed through this lens. Of man, God has shown our family grace and that should have an effect. Eli did not communicate that to his family. Eli did not pass that truth on to them. And so they were full of pride. God continues as if he thought it was too much already. You know, and he rebukes them there in verse 29 with two rhetorical questions. All right, two rhetorical questions. Why do you scorn my sacrifice and offering that I prescribed for my dwelling? Why do you honor your sons more than me by fattening yourselves on the choice parts of every offering made by my people Israel? And you think about these two questions. They're both about, you know, Eli, why are you honoring yourself and your kids above me? And honor is, is, a, is an interesting word in the Hebrew. Honoring has to do, again, ironically in this narrative, with weight. Eli honored himself, and so he gained a lot of weight. And eventually he'll fall back in his chair and break his neck under that weight and die. So his choice to honor himself and give greater weight to himself is the very thing that leads to his downfall. Right? That's, good, that's good writing, right? And we'll see that as we go through that, right? But, but he, he should have given greater weight to God. And he fell into the same trap with his kids. He gave his, he gave his kids greater weight, greater honor than he did to God. And so when we do this, we create idols. That's essentially what he does, right? Eli wouldn't, you know, rebuke them or restrain them or pull them up on their behavior because their displeasure mattered more to him than it did God's displeasure towards their behavior. They mattered more than God. That's a danger. And so he gave greater weight to that. But of course, the irony in the story is that God's word is the only one that matters. 
God says to Eli very clearly, here's what's going to happen. And guess what? That's what happens. Because God's trying to show us that, hey, you know what? He speaks in his word. It matters. And then we better be a people that honor God's word above anything and everything else. All right? Because ultimately, that's what should carry weight. That's what should influence us. All right? Eli's sons, yes, challenging. If he tried to pull them up, what would they do? If people tried to push back on them, they would have little adult temper tantrums. Right? And they would forcefully resort to violence. Sometimes kids are like that. Right? But if you're honoring God more than them, then their reaction doesn't matter because that's not what carries weight. God is. Right? We've got to understand this in our own lives, right? Even if, we, even if you don't have kids, those are important principles. Amen? It's a scary picture of Eli's house. It's a scary picture. Right? But it is a life that is cursed. Right? How do we avoid that? Well, again, just like in Hannah's prayer, in Hannah's oracle at the start of the chapter, it ends with kind of these kind of cryptic writings, right, uh, of, you know, God saying, look, well, you know what, Eli, I'm going to raise up for myself a faithful priest who, would do, who will do according to what is in my heart and mind. I will firmly establish his priestly house, and they, and they will minister before my anointed one always. Again, this is interesting, just like it was in, in, in uh, verse 10 of chapter 2, when Hannah said these things about the anointed one. It's interesting because there is no anointed one yet. There's no king in Israel. He's coming. Saul's coming. Right? But he's not there yet. David's coming, but he's not there yet. But here the writer, you know, is you know, the messenger from God that comes to, to him uh, with this message is, is looking forward, all right, to a, a figure who will both be a priest but also be closely tied with the anointed one. Right? And there's, there's volumes of commentaries written over who is this priest. Right? Is it talking about David? Well, you know, there are some hints maybe it's David, but at the same time, David doesn't minister, you know, though he does wear the ephod, he doesn't actually minister, he's not even allowed to build the temple because he murders so many people, you know, kills so many people in battle. Not murders, man, kills people in battle, right? And so he does, though he does murder Uriah's, you know, Uriah, right? We'll get to that later, you know, but, but so it can't be David, all right? Some people think it's Zadok. Right? And Zadok will kind of appear on the scene here and at the end, towards the end of 1 Samuel and into 2 Samuel uh, from a line that you know, seems a little bit confusing. Right? Where did this guy come from? You know, and Zadok, you know, his family does have, have a long, long lineage, but even he dissipates with time. All right? But there is a figure in the Old Testament who has both these roles. And that figure is Melchizedek. Right? Who, as Trevor said, in the New Testament is pointed to as Jesus. Jesus comes in the line of Melchizedek. And even the similarities in the Hebrew between Melchizedek and Zadok, who will become the, the primary priest in 1 Samuel, uh, is very similar. Right? Melchizedek, right? King, priest. Right? Zadok, priest. Same Hebrew root. Right? But, but Jesus is the one who ultimately fulfills that. And so you think, how? Okay. Blessings, curse. Man, I don't want to be on the curse side of things. I don't want to be like Eli. I don't want my family to be like Eli. Man, I don't want, I don't want to go down that road. Well, you've got to follow the priest. And you have a great high priest, Jesus, right? Who's come not in the, not in the, the flawed uh, Levitical priesthood line, but in the priesthood line of that of Melchizedek. And in Melchizedek, he reigns, you know, Old Testament figure with no perceived beginning or end. An eternal priesthood. 
meaning he is always able to intercede, right? And just as the, the passage says, he's a faithful priest who will do to, to, according to what is in my heart and mind. He'll, he'll be of one heart and mind of God. Again, this is a prophecy clearly pointing and looking forward towards Jesus. And even for Eli, in some sense, there is hope. You know, because he does say of Eli's, you know, offspring, right? Verse 36, and everyone left in your family line will come and bow down before him. Which is kind of interesting. Do you bow down before the priest? No. But if he's a priest king, like Jesus, then yeah, you, every knee will bow. And every tongue will confess that he is Lord. And even Eli's offspring will plead for, 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 for food and for, and for, for money uh, from this great priest king. You know, as we, as we close out today, I encourage you to think soberly about this image. And to think about your life. For those of you who are fathers, I encourage you to doubly think and meditate on this concept. Because there are a few scarier passages in the Old Testament than that of Eli for fathers. And Eli's failures as fathers, man, cannot be our failures. We are meant to look at his failures and learn from them, not repeat them. Look at the ways he, he fell short, man, and grow and go beyond them. Look at the areas where he, he chose the wrong path and make the other decisions. But for all of us, we have to see that, man, you have a choice. This is a choice of the Old Testament, man. Mo Moses stands there at the end of Deuteronomy and puts the Israelites and separates them onto different sides of mountains. One that gets sunshine and one that does not get sunshine. One that's dead, one that's alive. And he says, hey, look, choose. Choose today who you're going to follow. If you're going to follow God, you know what? Your life will be blessed. If you rebel against God, you know what? You're going to be cursed. Because you're made in his image. And he's going to discipline you, correct you to try to get you on that right side. All right? Choose the path that leads to life. Amen? Let's have a prayer and then we'll stand and sing one final song. Let's pray. Our Father, we, uh, we thank you. We thank you that we have a great high priest in, in, in Jesus. You know, who has been tempted in every way and is yet victorious. Who offers, you know, himself as a sacrifice once and for all. And God, we pray you help us, God. Help us to listen to, to his words as he knows your heart and your mind more than any of us ever can. And we pray, God, you help us to be people that are blessed by you, God. Help us to choose to, to reject the world's values of me first, of a me mentality, God, but instead to orient our lives solely focused on you, God. God, we pray that, that you know, if we are this afternoon resembling Eli and his household more than that of Samuel and his household, God, help us repent. Help us to, to have eyes that are open to, to, to the reality of our need to change, God, and give us the means by which to, 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 to do that, God. Help us in this, God. Of course, we need so much grace and mercy along the way, God. But we pray that that grace can always be of great effect on our lives, changing us and molding us so that we reflect your glory to the world, God, around us. To not be influenced by the world, God, but to rather influence the world for your glory. Help us in all these things. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Awesome. Let's all stand together and sing. One final song.